0: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, do please keep uh, Luke chapter 1 open in front of you and at the same time please also have the bulletin open in front of you because you'll find inside the white bulletin Uh, an outline of where we're going in the next few minutes. Just before uh, Christmas, a couple of years ago, the uh, American Journal Newsweek invited people to post on their website what they thought about Jesus. Who do they think he is? Uh, They received, quite literally, thousands of posts. But if the, the sheer number of comments was encouraging... The content of those comments definitely was not. One person said, quote, Jesus is real in the sense that he exists for those who want him to exist. Someone else said, Jesus is my personal higher power. He helps me to stay sober one day at a time. Still another was utterly dismissive and wanted everybody to know about it, and so he said, honestly, I don't care about Jesus. Who or what he is or isn't doesn't affect me. Eventually, as I scrolled through the comments, I came to just one person who had the courage to say, Jesus is the Son of God, who was born, died, and rose from the dead to save us from our sins. He lives today and will come to earth again. Just one person. So that's a snapshot of what people today think about Jesus. Almost everybody has an opinion. But there's no clear consensus. Instead, there's just a rather disturbing mixture of prejudice, guesswork... And ignorance. Only a tiny minority have a clear idea about who Jesus is based on Scripture. Now, last Sunday morning, uh, we were admiring the portrait of a Reformation church in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And one of the things that we discovered is that when a church is built on the message of the New Testament, that church will be a school. It will be a place of learning. It'll be a place where God's people are constantly growing in their knowledge of the Son of God. And uh, unlike most of the schools that I guess many of us attended in childhood, an authentic New Testament church will be a happy school, Because the curriculum isn't going to be preparing us to pass an exam about Jesus. It's not that kind of school. Instead, it's going to be doing something way more significant. It's going to be changing us. It's going to be fixing us where we're broken and filling us where we're empty. And what will be the result of all of this learning It will be that God's people, that is to say people just like you and just like me, will know the truth about Jesus in such a way that both by our lips and by our lives we can share what we've learned with others. Now one of the very best people to help us with this is the Gospel writer Luke uh, as New Testament Christians, it is impossible to ignore Luke. Uh, his Gospel is the longest book in the New Testament, and if we include his second volume, which is the book of Acts, then Luke wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else. So if we want to understand the message of the New Testament We cannot avoid Luke. But having said that, we also have to say that uh, studying Luke is not a small undertaking. Here at St. Barnabas, we began our studies in the Gospel of Luke six years ago. Most of you here this morning weren't with us then. And even by the end of last year and more than 60 sermons later, we still haven't finished. So this morning, rather than picking up where we left off at the end of last year, I thought it would be helpful to take a moment to, as it were, step back and try and get the big picture of Luke clear in our minds. Uh, Next week, God willing, we'll return to chapter 18, which is where we did get to uh, at the end of last year. But this morning, we're asking the question, how can Luke... Help us today. Let me make three comments by way of introduction. First, when Luke wrote his two-volume work, he was writing to deal specifically with doubters and sceptics. You see, the early church was encouraging people to become followers of Jesus. But the problem was that Christians were being persecuted. So, quite naturally, people were asking, if this is God's plan for the human race, how come there's so much hostility to the message? And how can your movement possibly survive when your leader is absent? And so many of his followers are being persecuted And even killed. Now, of course, 2,000 years later, those questions are still very much with us, aren't they? Ministries like Open Doors remind us every single day that the persecution of Christians is just as intense today as it was then, if not more so. And yet, this is interesting, there are more followers of Jesus alive today than there have ever been in all the previous generations of human history put together. Now how do you account for that? Well, in part, it's because Luke wrote his two-volume work to answer questions exactly like that. And down the ages, many sceptics and doubters who've taken the trouble to read what Luke has written have found that their doubts have melted away and they've become believers. So there's the first reason. The second reason for studying Luke is that of all the Gospel writers, Luke especially emphasises God's love for sinners. In Matthew, the emphasis is on the royalty of Jesus a descendant of David. In Mark, the spotlight is on the power of Jesus. In John, uh, the spotlight is on the new creation, the new birth that Jesus brings. But Luke shows us something very personal, that God doesn't simply tolerate you and me, he actually loves us. Just think of the parable of the prodigal son for a moment. Luke is the only one who records it. And I ask you, I mean, can anyone remain unmoved by the picture that Jesus paints of the father running to meet his wayward son and kissing him and throwing a party to welcome him home? It's a beautiful picture of the extravagant, unconditional love of God to everybody who knows they've messed up and who wants a fresh start. And my friends, I'm sure some of you here this morning know that this side of heaven, there is nothing more wonderful in all of human experience than a personal experience of the love of God. So that's the second reason. And uh, there is a third reason, which is that Luke gives us the essential framework for a Christian worldview. If you don't know what a worldview is, come and ask me afterwards. And I say that because of all the Gospel writers, only Luke dates the ministry of Jesus in human history. So, in chapter 1, verse 5, Luke tells us that the birth of John the Baptist was promised in the time of Herod, king of Judea. In chapter 2, verse 1, he dates the birth of Jesus to the year when Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the whole Roman world. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, he tells us that John the Baptist began his ministry in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. Now, why does Luke do this? Why be so very precise? Well, he's reminding us that human history pivots around what God does in Jesus Christ. The rulers that Luke mentions were all major players in their day. But no matter how hard they tried, none of them could frustrate the mission of Jesus. Now, don't we need to hear this again today? We can be easily deceived into thinking that our world is shaped by the big political players. It can seem, can't it, as if the the Trumps and uh, the Zoomers and the Vladimir Putins are calling all the shots. But Luke reminds us that behind all human governments there is a hidden hand. That God is controlling human history according to his set purpose. And right at the very centre of that purpose is the Lord Jesus Christ. So I suggest that Luke's book is as relevant and important for us today as it was when it was first written. And so for that reason, God willing, we're going to be studying Luke all the way through to Easter next year. But this morning, uh, we're just looking at the first four verses of the book, which is Luke's introduction, because it's here that Luke gives us four keys to unlock the message of the whole thing. And the first key is Luke's purpose. Luke's purpose. In the original Greek, verses one to four are just one sentence. The experts say it's actually one of the finest sentences in all Greek literature. And in the original, the last word in the sentence is the word certainty. That is where the emphasis lies. Luke wants this man, Theophilus, and everybody else who reads his book to have certainty Actually, a more literal translation of verse 4 would be concerning the things you have been taught, I want you to have certainty. Notice, will you, that Theophilus had already been taught something about the Christian message. Uh, We don't know very much about the content of the teaching that he received, or indeed the competence of the teachers. But quite clearly, there was a problem. Theophilus was not convinced. Now, my friends, I hope you can see already that that sounds extremely familiar. We all know plenty of people who would say the same thing. Uh, Last year, uh, the rock star David Bowie died at the age of 69. Before he died, he was interviewed by a Sunday newspaper and uh, he was asked about his religious beliefs. This is what he said. John Lennon, Pete Townsend and I all had this same thing of cobbling together our own belief system. In my case, it's one that changes all the time as I need to change it. Because I cannot really come to grips with absolutism. I'm fascinated by characters like Sir Thomas More who died for their faith. I can't understand how people can be like that. And then he says this How do they get to that place where they know with absolute certainty what's true? End quote. Now, whether Theophilus would have put it like David Bowie or not, we don't know. What we do know is that what he had been taught hadn't brought him to the point of being fully persuaded. He wasn't about to make any radical changes in his life. His diary didn't look any different after the teaching that he'd received than it did before. Now, this is really, really important. Think about it with me for a moment. You see, in most areas of study, it doesn't really matter whether our lives are changed by what we've learned or not. In theory, I could study mathematics and go on to become a brilliant teacher or a professor at the university. And I could do that without making any changes whatsoever in my lifestyle. My private life, my personal behavior wouldn't of itself be an obstacle to me becoming every bit as brilliant as Professor Stephen Hawking, for example. Most areas of study are like that. Theology is not. When I study the Bible, my private life matters a very great deal. The way I respond to what I've learned in Scripture, the way that it shapes my behaviour, is absolutely critical. Because, you see, the message of the New Testament is that there's no possibility of me reaching the point of certainty without it. And experience proves the point. I wonder if you've noticed a tremendous irony in the Western Church today. Today we have unrestricted access to more Bibles and more Christian literature than any generation in history. Through a laptop, through an iPad, through an iPhone, an ordinary Christian today has more Bible study materials at his fingertips than the entire faculty of a theological seminary a hundred years ago. And yet large swathes of the church today are less certain about what they believe and why they believe it than ever before. Why is that? Why is that? A few years ago, uh, Professor J.I. Packer wrote a book called Knowing God.
1: And in it he makes this
0: very, very perceptive comment. Quote, Knowing God is a matter of personal dealing. Knowing God is more than knowing about him. It is a matter of dealing with him as he opens up to you and being dealt with by him as he takes knowledge of you. End quote. I wonder if you can see what he's saying. He's saying that our quest for certainty about Christian things is inseparable from the way that we respond to God's self-disclosure, his revelation of himself in the pages of Scripture. And so as we study the Gospel of Luke together, God comes to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and he says, will you let me in? I'm not going to sort of barge into your life uninvited, but if you will let me into your life and if you will allow me to to deal with your sin, with your brokenness, with all of your hurts, then you will find the certainty that you are seeking. So, that is Luke's purpose. It means that if we reach the end of his gospel and we're still uncertain, well, my friend, it's not because we're unintelligent. It's because we've kept Jesus out. You see? That's the first to notice in the introduction. The second key that we find in these verses is Luke's perspective. Luke's perspective. And you'll find this with me in verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Now the important word in verse 1 is the word fulfilled. Fulfilled. Luke's telling us, you see, that the events that he's going to be writing about are not complete in themselves. If we're to understand them, we need to know that they're set in a very particular context. And that context is all of the promises of God going all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Let me give you uh, one example to show you what I'm talking about. In uh, verses 5 to 7, which we didn't read, but if you just put your nose on them, you'll see that Luke introduces us to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And he tells us three things about them. He says that they were upright in the sight of God, that they had no children, and that they were well along in years. So if we bring that up to date, here we've got a couple who are godly, childless, and old. Now, of course, Western society has become increasingly intolerant of people like that. Uh, It sees no real reason to pay special attention to the Zacharias and the Elizabeths. They're a bit of an inconvenience. But scripture is chock-a-block full of stories of God doing remarkable things through people just like that. And the first couple in the Bible who fit the profile are, somebody tell me, Abraham and Sarah. Thank you very much. Yes, in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to them and he promises to bring blessing to all nations through their family. And as the Bible story unfolds, it becomes very clear that this word blessing is actually shorthand for all of the benefits of the Gospel. It's shorthand for the forgiveness of sins, for a fresh start with God, and for eternal life with Jesus in a new creation. That's what this word blessing is all about. And 2,500 years after God spoke to Abraham, in Luke chapter 1, we find another couple exactly like Abraham and Sarah. And if we're reading carefully and thoughtfully, we can't help asking, well, I wonder, is God about to keep his promise? Will we perhaps find evidence of God's blessing in Luke's Gospel? Well, glance across the page for just a moment please, to chapter 1 and verse 41. Chapter 1, verse 41. Mary has just been told that she's going to be the mother of Jesus, and so she goes off to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Verse 41 When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. Verse 45, Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Do you see? Before Mary's even had the opportunity to take off her her coat and her hat and share her own exciting news, the Holy Spirit, speaking through Elizabeth, gives God's explanation. What God will do through Mary is all about blessing Now quickly turn to the very last page of Luke's gospel on page 747, chapter 24, verse 45, the very end of his gospel. If you want to know what a Bible book is all about, read the beginning, read the end, and you're on the right track. Chapter 24, verse 45. Jesus has been raised from the dead, and now he's commissioning his disciples for their ministry when he's gone to heaven. Verse 45. Then Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. When Jesus had led his disciples out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and so on. And of course, in the sequel to Luke's Gospel, the book of Acts, it was these men who went on to take the message of God's blessing to all the nations of the known world. And Luke saw it with his own eyes as he travelled with the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys. Now why am I telling you all this? Why is this actually so important for us this morning? Well, because, friends, the Christian life is not just about Jesus and me. I don't mean that Jesus is not interested in your life and all the challenges that I have no doubt that you're trying to deal with this morning. He's very interested in every single one of them. But the point is that unless I see that as a Christian I'm caught up in something way bigger, that I'm actually part of God's salvation plan for the entire human race in every generation, If I don't see that, well then the danger is that I will see Jesus simply as my own personal life coach and nothing more. See, I won't actually then have the true picture. I won't see Jesus for who he really is with all authority in heaven and on earth, authority to forgive sins, authority over death, Authority to give eternal life. Authority to give purpose and joy to everyone who acknowledges him as their saviour and their Lord. And you see, if I don't see Jesus like that, well then I'm not going to do what I was encouraging all of us to do in Family Focus. Read the Bible with someone else. I won't do it, because Jesus is my personal life coach, that's all. So we desperately need Luke's perspective. Come back with me to Luke 1 uh, as we look at the third key, the third key to understand Luke's book, which is Luke's process.
1: In verse 2,
0: Luke says he's gathered his material from those who from the first were eyewitnesses. So Luke's book is not a sensational novelty. Other people had written about these things before him. So for example um, 60% of the Gospel of Mark appears word for word in Luke. But Luke has done a great deal more than simply rehash other people's work. Because in verse 3 he tells us that he has carefully investigated everything from the beginning. When did he do that? Well, the book of Acts tells us that Luke accompanied Paul on one of his visits to Jerusalem. And on that occasion, the apostle was put in prison for two years. And in that time, Luke had unrestricted access to a number of key eyewitnesses. For example, he was able to visit James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, and the head of the church in Jerusalem. He was able to interview Mary, the mother of Jesus, and, no doubt, other members of the family. He met all the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, most of the apostles and many other eyewitnesses with whom he could verify all of the important details. And so Luke can say with absolute confidence, I checked the facts with everybody and I know that this is true. Now, I know that as soon as uh, we say that these days, people are sceptical. We've got so used, haven't we, to journalists fabricating stories that we're naturally sceptical, aren't we, about any claim to truth and accuracy. Uh, When I was working in London quite a few years ago now, there were just a handful of occasions when the newspapers either quoted me or uh, wrote about something that uh, the company I was working for was doing at the time, in every single case, the facts were wrong, or they couldn't be bothered to spell my name correctly. Now, you see, the thing is, when any writer claims to be telling the truth, we are naturally sceptical. But let me suggest to you, that the only reason for that is because deep down inside we really do believe that there is such a thing as truth. Every human being, whether they know it or not, craves the truth. They do actually want to know it. So there's um, a relatively new type of literature coming out of the United States at the moment, and it's called creative non-fiction. The pioneer of this particular style of writing is a man by the name of Lee Gutkund. Uh, He's not only an award-winning author, but he's a university professor. So here's somebody who knows what he's talking about. And uh, in a recent interview about his work, this is what he said... Most people think that non-fiction is like plumbing, necessary but very dull and tedious. But creative non-fiction is taking history and writing it with flair because the truth is always more compelling than fiction. And later in the same article, He gives a number of rules, a sort of checklist, for people who are aspiring to write creative non-fiction. I'll mention four. Number one, make sure that everything you write is as accurate and honest as you can make it. Number two, don't invent any characters. Number three, if you can share what you've written with the people you're writing about. Number four, be aware of your own prejudices. Now friends, if you put Luke through that four-point grid, he comes out with five stars on every measure. And it means, of course, that Luke's Gospel is a brilliant document for sharing with a seeker, or with a new believer, because it is an accurate historical record of events that really happened. One of the greatest New Testament scholars uh, of the 20th century is a man called Sir William Ramsay, And uh, he started out being very sceptical about the truthfulness of Luke's writing Um, He had dipped into it, but he hadn't read it properly. When he did read it properly, it changed him completely. He said this, quote, Luke's history is unsurpassed in regard to its trustworthiness. See, friends, we really can trust Luke's history. When we share this book with another person, we can be absolutely confident that we're not going to be embarrassed by some new piece of evidence that undermines Luke's integrity as a truthful historian. So, lastly and very briefly, let's turn to the fourth key for reading this book, which I called Luke's Politics. You see, the point is Luke's Gospel is more than just history. It is that, but it's history plus. The eyewitnesses that Luke mentions, he describes them, you'll notice, as servants of the word. In other words, they weren't casual, dispassionate bystanders. They were so transformed by their experience that they gave their whole lives to telling other people about it. So these events that Luke is writing about are not simply historical events, they are kingdom of God events, which means that they change people. And for that reason, Luke says that he's grouped his material thematically into what he calls an orderly account. And that's because Luke has got an agenda, he's got a manifesto because he wants to change your thinking and he wants to change your priorities. Why is that? Well, my friends, it's because ever since the Garden of Eden, we've been building our lives and our priorities on the wrong foundation. But as we meet the Lord Jesus in this Gospel we consistently find Jesus putting our priorities back the way they should be, the right way up. He does it in his miracles, he does it in his parables, and in all his teachings. And not surprisingly, people don't like it. But you see, in the way that Luke has arranged his material, Luke is showing us, and this is a really important point, He's showing us that the bringing of salvation into our world is a massive reversal. In everything that Jesus does, he's seeking to restore us to the way that we were before sin entered the world. And most people find that so upsetting that in the end they join in the cry to crucify him. So take money as an example. Luke gives us more of the teaching of Jesus on money than any other writer in the New Testament. Now, today, of course, our society measures everything by money. We talk about a person's net worth. It kind of defines them. But Jesus comes along and says, no, I don't look at the world like that. I have a different way of measuring people. And most people, they find that very difficult to deal with. And you know, the rather unsettling pattern in this gospel is that the people who respond to Jesus in the right way are not the people that this world considers important. They are the outsiders, they're people with no religious privileges. The social outcasts, the underclass. So it's the shepherds at the cradle, it's the thief on the cross, it's the prostitutes, it's the hated Roman soldier at the cross, it's Zacchaeus, the despised tax collector. The people that we would least expect are the people who respond to Jesus in the right way and are saved. They they experience what it means to be blessed by God. On the other hand, all the respectable people, the people with marvellous religious privileges, unrestricted access to the Bible, complete freedom to listen to Jesus' teaching, uh,
1: unhindered
0: times of worship and prayer, well, they reject Jesus. Now, my dear friends, you can't have a bigger reversal than that, can you? And the difference, you see, between these two groups is that one group opened up their whole lives to Jesus. And in doing that, they discovered the Gospel to be true. They reached the point of certainty and they were saved. And the other group didn't. They were content with their privileges. Uh, They were delighted with uh, their religious knowledge. They had plenty of that. They were very comfortable with their social status. And they didn't want their lives to change. And so they never opened up their lives to Jesus. And therefore they never actually discovered whether the Gospel was true or not. So, as we finish... This week, please, will you think about this? If you want to know, if you want to be certain whether these things are true or not, if you really want to know what Christianity is all about, you have to open up your whole life to Jesus. (coughs) Ask him to come into your life because Luke's message is that there can be no certainty. Without it, shall we pray, (laughs) Heavenly Father in a world that has made a virtue of doubt and which denies the very possibility of truth. We thank you for the Gospel of Luke. We thank you that it is possible for us to be certain about all that Jesus has accomplished for us. Lord, please be with us as we study this Gospel together. Help us to be clear about what we believe and why we believe it. And for those who are perhaps investigating these things for the first time, please establish your truth in their lives and give them an experience of your overflowing love and grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.